Hello and welcome to Sounds Like a Plan, a podcast about how the music world is taking action in the climate crisis. I'm one of your hosts, Greg Cochran. I'm a podcaster and journalist. And I'm Faye Milton, a musician from the band Savages and the co-founder of Music Declares Emergency. This time on Sounds Like a Plan, we are talking festivals. Our guest is one of the most influential people in British live music, the boss of Reading and Leeds, Latitude Festival and many others. His name is Melvin Benn and he tells us about how his commitments to greener events have gone worldwide and how festivals can be a force for positive change. Yes, and he doesn't avoid some of the tough questions too, so it's a great listen. Before we go, we'll also leave you with some recommendations. So let's get into the podcast. We are talking festivals this time on the podcast, Faye. Um, And you must have been to more than one or two over the last few years. How many festivals do you think that you've been to as your time as a musician? Oh, my goodness. I don't know. I went so many as a a punter and then so, so many touring. Mm. You're like a festival expert. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I know a lot about um, the inside of a porter cabin, which is what you sit in behind the (laughs) stage before you go on. Sometimes you do like three festivals in a weekend. I remember one year particularly mm. painfully having to leave Glastonbury on Friday evening to go to a festival oh. in Switzerland or Germany or somewhere. And it just felt like not, you know, no one wants to leave Glastonbury on a Friday. But yeah, it's there's it's a big festival season. It's, it is great for musicians because... The, the fees you get for playing festivals are really good, mm-hmm. ultimately. So they pay really well and that, that can fund a whole tour, really. You know, some, some decent festival shows. So it's uh, a lot about how musicians keep going when people don't really buy physical products as much anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the reason we're talking about this is because I think festivals are a really key part of music culture, particularly here in the UK. We obviously love nothing more than watching our favourite artists while clinging on to a really soggy pint um, in, in, in the standing in the summer rain. Um, but they are a huge part of the music economy and uh, music identity. They're also really unique. They're these sort of temporary cities that get built, often in green spaces with thousands of people descending on them. Mm. Um, so there's a lot to talk about when it comes to a festival's carbon footprint and the effect that they have on the surrounding environment but um also just how they're spaces where ideas and activism and collective thinking can really thrive um they're amazing for those things and they can also be these sort of mass influential drivers of change and progress um, mm. so that's why we wanted to single them out on this episode away from uh, the other discussion about kind of live music in general because i think that they're they're a whole different thing in their own right um like a really fun petri dish a really fun petri dish is a great way of describing it i mean when when you get there like as an artist i've obviously i've been to festivals as a fan but never performed at them so how important are they for music artists culture because to to my mind they're they're a great place for people to meet to like catch up so Mm. you probably don't come across that many other musicians when when you're sort of head down working on new material or something like that but then summer we're talking about pre-covid times here now obviously when summer comes around it's almost like meeting up with some old friends or making some new friends or bouncing ideas around is that the reality of what what it's like being at a festival as an artist yeah it can be it can be i mean it's there'll be certain other artists who are on a similar touring cycle to you so you know you Mm. you tour you put an album out you tour you put an album out so there'll be similar you know the same kind of artists you might bump into at a festival one year and then three years later you see them again because they're on the sort of they're synced with you in some way and it's Mm. um yeah it's brilliant it's such a great place to finally get to see other bands shows you know you might have lived you know right next to someone for you know five years and you don't get to see their show until you're both at a festival together because you're sort of trapped in that place basically for a certain amount of time and and you do actually get the chance to go and see your friend shows see bands that you really really love get to meet them say hi become friends then then yeah I don't know it's really it can be really fun and enjoyable way to just get musicians together really Mm. I mean we'll we'll talk later in this episode about the sort of nuts and bolts of putting on a festival in, in its relation to to sustainability but I suppose staying on a sort of philosophical tip they're great places to go and 
learn more about things like climate action like i remember walking through the greenfields at glastonbury you know when i when i first went there it's you know a long time ago now but i didn't know anything about that subject i just sort of sat down and somebody was speaking on stage and and, and i was absorbing something that i knew absolutely nothing about and, and, it, and it was just a sort of opportunity for discovery so mm. in that sense is that a sort of um that's an important part of of our festival culture as well isn't it yeah absolutely i mean it's that amazing thing of walking around a festival like Glastonbury when you don't have a particular plan of where to go and who to look at and it's the anti-algorithm really it's like you you just happen upon things and you find things that you didn't already know and you didn't already like and maybe were completely different to your interests already and yet you really enjoy them and then you it creates new interests and that can be you know mainly music but also obviously there's loads of talks and um there's lots of sort of healing and treatments and all those kind of nice well-being things at festivals now as well. And, yeah, and all sorts of unwell-being things at festivals, of course, <laughs> which sometimes we will stumble upon. Um, I, I, I've been really encouraged to see like the last few years that... Um, the, lots of festivals have introduced kind of like talks and workshops and, and things like that into their programs and and climate seems to be something that's popping up more and more doesn't it like as, as being part of the uh part of the conversation that and, and part of the program at a lot of festivals yeah yeah i think so and i think a lot of it was just getting going when everything shut down for covid but i mean mm. i found it interesting in this interview of melvin that he said he didn't want his audience at the festival to have to be thinking about climate he wants to do all of mm. that stuff in the background and let you know the largely like 15 to 21 year olds at the festival just have a good time so every mm. festival is different and every audience is different so there's there's certainly places where it's like brilliant to use them as spaces to educate and inform and there's also spaces where it's like people just want to party but I think you know that's what's great about festivals you could you could two people could go to the same festival and have a completely different experience so yeah it's good mm, that it's definitely offered yeah because there's so much to talk about should we head straight into introducing our guest this week then mm. um as boss of festival republic melvin ben is responsible for organizing some of the uk and ireland's best known festivals so from reading and leeds to latitude wireless to electric picnic um basically he's known for putting on some really good parties in a field that's what his job is and has been for a long time um what's less known is that melvin is also a really keen and passionate um, environmentalist uh, he's been a real advocate in that area behind the scenes he's one of the key voices in music trying to drive green change um, making the live music events that we love so much more sustainable but there is a lot to navigate in that area and as you're about to hear uh, Melvin doesn't mind responding to some of the challenging questions that, that have come up in that area as well um, so here we go let's hear from Melvin Ben on Sounds Like a Plan Good to have you on the podcast, Melvin. Welcome to Sounds Like a Plan. Each episode, we are speaking to people from across the music world. So artists, activists, record labels, anyone taking action when it comes to the environment and sustainability and the broader climate crisis. Um, you've been working in live events for a long time. In festivals specifically, how far do you think the conversation around that has come since you first started? Um Gosh, that's a difficult question. It, it, it is a difficult question in a way. And I, and I guess it's, it, it's because the question is how far has the conversation come as opposed to how far has change come? Mm. Um, and if I was to answer the question, how far has the conversation come? I'd say quite a long way. Um, how far has change come? Significantly less. I mean, the conversation, I, I'm not quite sure why, but, you know, 2006, 2007, I guess 2006, really, when I first created Latitude Festival, I wanted that very much to be a different festival to everything else that was around in terms of, um, you know, I wanted it to have, you know, popular culture. I wanted it to have, you know, theatre and literature and arts and poetry at the heart of it rather than on the periphery of it. And... I also wanted it to have a completely different attention on recycling, sustainability, cleanliness, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so I guess I, I became, you know, proactive about it then. I mean, I guess I've always just been active about these things in my life. And 
But I was proactive around festivals, I think, for the first time in 2006 with Latitude. And, and I think from 2007, 2008, I started measuring my carbon footprint at, at every single one of my festivals. When I didn't know what measuring carbon footprint was, and nobody else seems to have heard seemed to have heard about it at that point, but somehow I found out about it and thought it was the right thing to do. Um, and and at the same time, we were starting Julie's bicycle, um, you know, which was, you know, principally aimed at carbon footprint reduction in the music industry. And Julie's bicycle has become fantastic absolutely fantastic but the area that it failed in most successfully in the early days was the music industry um, which is what it had been set up to work in and I actually found in the early days found better results in theatre in particular so I think 2006 2007 2008 2009 2010 in a way 2009 and 10 really post the 2008 economic crash the conversation and what little activity there was essentially fell off a cliff. I mean, it just disappeared and it it was important, but not urgent. The economic crisis was urgent. I think it's shown now that even during the pandemic crisis, that the climate and sustainability is urgent as well. It's no, whereas at best it was important in 2008, 9, 10 during the economic crisis What we've learned is that we were making a mistake then by treating it as important. We should have been treating it as urgent then in the way that we're treating it as urgent now. So the conversation has been going on for quite a long time. It's continuing. And thanks to, you know, people like Greta Thunberg, you know, that thanks to, you know, people like Extinction Rebellion, Music Declares, you, you know, Fair Yourself. It's great. It's really, it's massively important. Mm. That that moment you were just talking about as well, Melvin, like two thousand six, two thousand and seven. A lot of people forget there was there were things like the live Earth concert at Wembley Stadium. Like that music was involved. Music was trying to raise the profile of the urgency of the action. And and like you say, the economic crisis came along, and it's sort of all of the momentum just kind of shifted, didn't it? And it went away. But right now, it does feel like. Um, there's a general swell around it as, as well as it coming back into culture specifically and, and music as obviously as we're talking about. I'm interested to know, like as somebody, obviously I've never put on a festival in my life. You've put on probably hundreds by this point. Um, so how do you factor in sustainability into the planning? So when you're sat down on day one of putting on an event like Reading and Leeds or Latitude or Electric Picnic or something like that, how does the environment factor into your decision-making? Um, I presume it kind of comes into a bit of everything, but h- how do those two things come together? I'm really interested to know. I guess it's one of those, um, h- how does one factor in um, sustainability into, uh, into an event? And I guess in, in the past, it had always been a little bit, uh, not, not haphazard, I, I wouldn't say it was haphazard, but I sort of had a loose sustainability policy um you, you, you know and in fairness i've uh, from 2008 2009 within festival republic i i've employed a full-time sustainability manager i would suspect in fact i know i was probably the only promoter in the world um employing a sustainability manager in 2008 2009 and i have continued it even during the economic crisis when it would have been easy to think that I should get rid of that role. It's not always been the same person. So I, I, I took a decision very early on to employ a sustainability manager. And I, I think the simple way of describing it is that if a local authority is passing a new bylaw or creating a new policy, for example, one of the things that it does is it it sends it to the directors, the, the, a local council would send the potential new policy to the directors of um, child welfare, the director of social services, the director of, uh, you know, disability access, etc. And, and it would ask each one of those what negative impact that policy might have on their department, if any, because the, if it did, they would want to take it out. And I guess that's what my sustainability manager was doing. And they were always sitting down with my head of production, my head of site management, my head of infrastructure and saying, what are you doing? 
how can we plan what you're doing with a smaller carbon footprint? And that, I guess, is how I've done it since 2008. Um, and then in 2019, you know, Festival Republic is part of Live Nation, um, uh, and you know, Live Nation owns, you know, the majority shareholding in Festival Republic. And, and as Live Nation promoters, you know, we try to meet every couple of years, every couple, a couple of times a year. And, and I think in, in February of, of 2019, we were meeting in London and um, uh, one of the Dutch promoters, you know, said, what are we doing about the environment? Are we, you know, should we have a policy on the environment? And, mm-hmm. and, and I put my hand up and said, well, you know, I've had a policy for a long time and, um, it, you know, I'll try and create a European policy for uh, Live Nation as a whole across Europe. And we set about that in February and, and I'd set myself a target of by the beginning of May. And I got everybody together in Paris, um, appropriately, I thought, and we sat down and knocked it all together and, and, and I created what was a, a sustainability charter. And in truth, if I'm being honest with you, I, I, I was really, really happy with it. And I was about to put it out and I panicked a little bit and I thought, gosh, this is quite a big statement. I mm-hmm. should check with Michael Rapino, who's the, the CEO of Live Nation, whether he's okay about this going out because... I was slightly worried that it might, you know, he might be, well, we can't put that out because the Americans are not up to speed. And he emailed back almost immediately and said, you can't put this out, Melvin. And it was like my worst fear. But he was like, you can't put this out because I want it to be a worldwide policy. I don't want it to be a European policy. And that was wow. like, wow, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and so we then had to change it all. And the amazing thing is, Michael, didn't dilute it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, what we had to do is take out all of the European Union um, uh, references of, you know, of legislation because it was going to become a worldwide policy. And, mm. and we, you know, we created a, a, a worldwide sustainability charter that the whole company, Live Nation as a whole now, is, is working to. And so now when planning a festival or a building or a new office or anything like that, we plan it with the aims of the sustainability charter in mind. And so it's not haphazard anymore. It's got very clear focus and it's a policy position and, and actually it just becomes much easier as well. Yeah. And hopefully listeners will know that they've been to plenty of like Live Nation gigs and events and festivals over the years. But that is enormous. What you're talking about there is, is a sort of worldwide company commitment to sustainability. You know, I, d- I don't know the exact figures, but Live Nation probably put on the majority of shows around the world, certainly a, a huge chunk of them. So that that's enormous change that you, that you led there, Melvin, which is um, that is fantastic. You mentioned a little bit earlier about the fact that you you measured the carbon emissions of the um, live events you're putting on. You've been doing that for quite a long time. I'm interested to know um, what does the breakdown of that look like? Where, where is the carbon coming from when you are putting on a festival and um, yeah, I, I'm just interested to know what the sort of pie chart of a festival carbon footprint looks like, roughly. In essence, the most significant generator of carbon is is audience travel. And that's the case across the world. That's not just here in the UK. And, you, you know, ironically, of course, the, the largest events in the UK tend to be the ones in the most rural locations where people have to drive to or, mm-hmm. or get trains and coaches, etc. And that's the biggest single piece of, uh, you know, of the pie chart in that sense of it. And then, then of course, there's, you know, there's, uh, you know, staff travel, um, you know, artist travel. Uh, and then on top of that, there's, you know, the power, effectively the power generation Mm -hmm. Uh, to make the events work, really. But audience travel uh, is, without question, the the biggest piece. And, of course, it's the piece that, in the main, we can do least about. Uh, But, again, the move, and ironically, you you know, one wouldn't have associated a Conservative government with leading the way on the change to sort of reduce that carbon output from cars, Extraordinarily enough, Boris is just do, is doing just that. He, he he is probably taking greater steps than any other leader in the world, or he's certainly making bigger statements than any other leader in the world. Of course, the steps haven't been taken yet. Mm. Um, but do I think he's going to their their shallow promises? 
Actually, I don't, um, because you can see the car manufacturers, Jaguar, Rolls-Royce, Volvo last night announced that they were not going to produce any, uh, only going to start producing electric cars, mm. um, you know, from no later than 2030, I think. And, mm. and they're making those statements because country leaders like Boris Johnson are saying, we don't want your cars polluting our environment. And mm. the change is... For me, you, you know, where I've been at this for a long time, change is so, feels so rapid now. And it, mm. of course it has to be. I'm not, I'm not, you know, it really has to be, but it actually, it feels like an awful lot of grown-ups have got the message. Mm. I mean, that's what it feels like. Yeah. Uh, and they're acting on it. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, it feels like that with people's attitudes as well. It's that it felt like for so long there was this pushing against this sort of wall of denial, really, of like this is happening. No, is it really? You know, umming and ahhing. And then all of a sudden, it. It. I mean, and statistics show as well. It's research shows that everyone's pretty much worried about the climate and ecological situation now. It's that opinion change happened really quickly with the as you mentioned, Greta and Extinction Rebellion and um, all sorts of things, David Attenborough coming together and, and that those shifts can happen really quickly. Talking of audience travel, though, I was going to ask you how you feel. Maybe this is a bit of a putting you on the spot question, so excuse me if it is, but how do you feel about um, festivals marketed at UK audiences, but in, say, Croatia, Spain, around the world, even to some extent Coachella and, and places like that where people will fly when particularly in the case of the UK, there are plenty of festivals in our, in our own country. Unfortunately, I would suggest to you that I'm okay with it, unfortunately. Mm. And it is a controversial position um, mm. because everything I believe in would suggest that I would say that's bad. Mm. But actually, I don't want our society to be massively different to what it is mm. now. I don't want a society where people feel they can't enjoy the life that they've been enjoying because of the carbon output. I want governments and science to find solutions to allow us to continue doing what we are doing without having to compromise on our lifestyle. And I've always been, if I'm really honest with you, I've always been really straightforward about that. And mm. Reading Festival will always be my favourite festival in the world. And it's, it's really special because it's very much aimed at young people, many of whom are having their first real wild weekend without yeah. parental eyes. And they're there to party. And in truth, I don't want to burden them with the world, if I'm really honest with you. I want them to have a really good party. And I want to make sure that I do everything to help them do that and minimise the carbon footprint at the same time. I don't want it to be their responsibility if it isn't in their head to be so. And so actually, I'm a little against this the idea that that you know you shouldn't get on an aeroplane uh, mm. to go to another place for enjoyment or indeed for business, mm. because actually I think the responsibility is on the aeroplane companies and governments to make sure that we can fly without polluting the air, and that's what the focus should be. Because in truth, if a punter can't go to a Croatian festival, mm. why is it okay for an artist to go and earn their living at a Croatian festival? Mm. And we don't want to be in a world where artists are domestically bound, where Absolutely. we can't see Travis Scott in, in England because he doesn't, you know, because of a carbon footprint issue. That shouldn't be the case. And, and because that's how as you well know, Faye, that's, mm. that's your principal source of income for most artists now, is yeah. to work. And you can't keep working the same territory all the time. And, yeah. you, you know, do I want young, you, you know, young men and women going to Croatia to meet young men and women of other cultures? 100% I do. Yeah. So I, it's, it's a tough one. Mm. But I'm, I've always been really clear on it. And I've always been really clear of it because of my desire to let 
people come to Reading and not be burdened by the world and let me be burdened by the world. And I think that we should let governments and scientists be by, be burdened by the world to solve the flying crisis. Mm, brilliant. I think that's such a great attitude. And, and I tend to agree with you in the, in the sense that obviously I'm working on Music Declares Emergency. A lot of the time, the first question on people's lips are, will artists have to stop flying? What about artists touring? And I'm always of the opinion, no, of course not. Because when does where does that stop? Are you only going to listen to music from people made in your own village or town? <laughs> or, you know, it's like where does it stop? We all want to hear music from overseas, and it's a great part of the culture of the whole world for that mixing and that ideas exchange and that coming together to take place. So it's yeah, it's like let's fix the boring stuff. Let's not change the exciting stuff. A hundred percent with you. A hundred percent. <laughs> I think that could be a good tagline for this podcast. Let's fix the boring stuff and keep the exciting stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. Melvin, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the 1975 show that was due to happen in uh, Finsbury Park in London uh, last year, 2020, which obviously was a victim of the, the pandemic, didn't happen. But that gig was unique for a number of reasons. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the ideas that you were going to try out at that event and um, whether you sort of saw it as a little bit of a blueprint for or a test case for taking some of those and putting them into other festivals? Yes. Um, I mean, that was, uh, I think everybody is aware of, you know, obviously the 1975's passion for environmental issues and, you know, the the recording that they did with Greta Thunberg, I thought was a great statement around that and, and hugely influential. And I, I don't think you can underestimate the 1975's impact on their fans in getting that message across. It's really, really important. And, and you know, we work with the 1975 quite closely, you know, generally, and they wanted to put something together for Finsbury Park. We wanted to do the same. And they wanted it to be as carbon neutral, as uh, environmentally friendly uh, as is possible. And this was for 2020. I think 2019 they did, I think it was 2019, they headline Reading uh, and, and Leeds festivals. And, you, you know, they did that amazing thing around bringing people's old T-shirts and they reprint, you, you know, they print their new logo and their new statements on, on old T-shirts, which was, which was terrific. And, you know, people thought it was gimmicky. I don't think it is. I think it's an opportunity yeah. for the future. Um, and, and we talked at length about, you know, minimising that sort of carbon footprint of, of the event. And we talked at length, and there's so much that you can talk about. You, you know, one of, the, one of the principal things we talked about was, um, you know, having a, a sort of red, green and amber signposting of all of the uh, food that was on sale. And obviously the, the higher footprint uh, would be uh, red and, you know, the lower footprint would be green. And that's something that we started to talk to a couple of universities about and, you know, to see whether we could develop that and move that forward. And we were definitely going to imp implement that. And that would go back to my point earlier about not wanting to overburden, um, mm. you know, people. But, you know, if, if people have got a choice, well, the truth is, you know, if you've had a couple of pints and you really want a bacon butty or whatever <laughs> it is, even if it's got a red marker on it, you want it. Um, mm. And I don't want to take that choice away. I'm happy for them to feel guilty the next day, but I don't really <laughs> want them to take that choice away. But I do want to make sure there's plenty there with the, the green marker that says, actually, this has got a low carbon footprint. And and that was one of the things that we were we were going to do. And, um, you know, we were going to work with a, um, a couple of tree charities, Trees for Cities being one of them. And I've been a patron of Trees for Cities since probably for 20 years now. Mm. Um, you know, it's a terrific little charity that helps plant trees in, uh, in cities, um, you know, for uh, actually not just for environmental. In fact, when it first started, in truth, it was hardly about the environment at all. It was about social impact because, mm -hmm. um, you know, people behave better when there's trees in their environment than when there's not trees in, in their environment and just concrete. So Trees for Cities really started with, with a, a sort of social angle as opposed to an environmental angle, although, you know, it could be that the, they're one and the same thing in some, some respects. So, mm -hmm. you know, we were working with Trees for Cities and, and one of the uh, other charities. Um, so, uh, you know, we were doing that. We were looking at 
For example, and this is a this is a really tough one. You know, behind every main stage is a huge generator because mm. there isn't. You can't find a thirteen amp plug in the middle of a park, uh, and if you found one, it wouldn't be big enough to generate all the lights that provide. You know, the associated and the sound. You know, that provide the atmosphere and, and the sound to the event. So, behind every main stage, there's a huge generator. Behind every really big main stage, there's two huge generators, um, and they're paired together. Um, and they're paired together because if you've got forty, fifty, a hundred thousand people in front of the stage, and the generator goes down, yeah. do you just want to just rely on the electricians fixing the generator and it starting up again? Mm. Not really. Um, a, there could be all sorts of social problems as a result if it goes down for too long. If it's the mm. if the crowd become angry, but B actually does an artist want to be remembered for not being able to finish the set because one of the generators behind the stage failed? That would be disastrous for artists' careers in a way. Even if it even if it restarted, it would be hard to get back in that flow if you've got that kind of. That dropout, I think it's a hundred percent fair. And, and 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 in fairness, if you go to Shambhala Festival and it, it drops out, that's all fine because that's what the artists, that's what the punters have gone to buy into. Mm. You know that risk of everything not being quite, you know, not working. If if it does now, then as Chris and I'm sure you'll talk to Chris Johnson at some point because Chris is amazing. But Chris has perfected it so it doesn't fail very much at Shambhala but of course it's much smaller but we talked actively about whether we would have just one generator and take that risk we that's a, a discussion yeah. um yeah. you know we didn't but you know but it, it was a discussion it was um, a discussion around you know whether it would be entirely vegetarian because in theory and I say in theory because I think there's a lot of work to be done on the exclusive merits of vegetarianism, and I say that um, that has not eaten meat or fish since 1973. Um, <laughs> but anyway, there's a, a lot of people that are not ready for it, um, mm. not ready for veganism, vegetarianism. But we looked at everything, actually, in fairness, Greg, we looked at absolutely everything. Mm. And we were going to produce the lowest carbon footprint event that I think anybody had produced in terms of a mass popular culture event, like mm. a, a concert in Finsbury Park. And we were all set for it, of course, until the pandemic arrived. But actually, they're all in plan for everything now. So, mm. um, it, you know, actually at Reading and Leeds and, you know, at every other festival that we try and get off the ground this year, we'll have that carbon footprint babeling on all the food, uh, you know, for example, we'll, you know, we will put an end to, um, you know, selling plastic bottles, et cetera, et cetera. Some of that is part of the sustainability charter as opposed to connected to the 1975. Mm. And food was one of the things that, you know, I very much got as a, a an agenda item to look at in terms of reduction of carbon for the, um, you know, for the sustainability charter. So much of what we were doing around the 1975 was just 100% part of what we were doing around the sustainability charter for Live Nation as well, really. So they, they, they were all one and the same. But, I mean, you know, we published the, the sustainability charter in June 2019 and, and you know, the season ran, the festival season ran. And and I, I, I told Carlsberg, who are uh, my biggest provider of beer, uh, that I wanted to talk to them about how they could reduce their carbon footprint. And um, they came in to see me in, in January 2020. And I thought this was going to be a really tough meeting where I was going to have effectively have to put the biggest left shoe that I've got and <laughs> stick it right up them uh, in order to <laughs> moving. And uh, I'll be honest with you, they blew me away. They absolutely blew me away. The work that they had done was phenomenal and and it was things like i'll just give you a really simple example and the simple example is that carlsberg are a national company they've got vehicles going around the country all of the time what they said to me is that let's say for reading and leeds as an example if i made sure that my beer contractor the person selling the beer put the order in 
on the 1st of August, hmm. they could reduce their carbon footprint by uh, X amount. And if they put it, put it in the ordering on the, uh, in the middle of July, they could increase it by an even bigger amount. Hmm. Because if it's in the middle of July, the order... All of the things that are needed at Reading and Leeds, they all get brought to a centralised place to be sent to Reading and Leeds for efficiency. Mm. But if the order is put in 10 days before Reading and Leeds happens, they're having to pull all of these products from different warehouses up and down the mm. country in order to serve the public, the kids at Reading and Leeds. Mm. Um, uh, and that is an additional footprint that could be avoided by putting the order in a month earlier because then it can all go on the regular truck movements and they'd worked out all of this stuff and actually I sat there having thinking I'd have to buy a big pair of boots um, <laughs> in their arse quite frankly and I sat there agog I was blown away by just how good they were and, and they were so excited to present it because if I was happy with it, mm. they were going to take it back to Denmark and try and get it adopted as policy for Carlsberg throughout the, the world. And that was all as a result of me creating a sustainability charter and them knowing that if they came in to see me with a half-baked idea they wouldn't need to use the stairs on the way out. <laughs> um, and uh, they responded. It's that level of detail that can actually make serious differences. And, and, and at times you just don't know that that level of detail can make a difference. And, and all it needs is a little bit of extra planning. Extraordinary, mm. isn't it? Mm. Yeah. And also just an understanding of how all of the things add up, all of those little things that you don't necessarily think about. It's not just the headline kind of the band flying in. It's, it's all of the things that go to make up that carbon footprint that can be reduced. You, you mentioned when you're talking about the 1975 that you couldn't just plug in a 13 amp plug into the middle of Finsbury Park. However, that got me thinking. There's festivals and events in Finsbury Park every single summer throughout the summer why can't we build a electricity supply that could supply a stage and get rid of the use for generators and then you could even sort of make it a i, I know it doesn't work like this but it will run off the grid but the the energy supply would be supplied by a green energy provider is that something that could work at festival sites and parks across the world yes great <laughs> go away and do that <laughs> and uh, yeah no, in truth, that's the simple answer Faye. and it, it's been an active discussion for me at reading and leeds and finsbury park and latitude uh and download for the last two years it's incredibly complicated right. um, but it's ongoing it, it's it's ongoing for electric picnic in ireland as well mm -hmm. um the simple answer is yes that is that is the long-term aim Great. Good to know. And I'm sure that can be translated to all sorts of different outdoor events as well, not just music events. Yes, exactly. Yeah. No, no. And, that, and that's something that I'm, I'm talking to Harringay Council about and, you know, Leeds Council and Reading Council. Where, you know, it, 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 it's something that we, again, building a substation because it needs to be a substation, building a substation in a, fee a remote field in Leeds or a field that is on a, a floodplain in Reading mm. and that's only used for one weekend of a year also has to be worked out just how much environmental impact you are going to save versus the construction mm. and building of it. So, you know, it, it's not... The answer is yes, it can be done. The more com complicated answer is working it out um, mm. takes quite a long time and um, talking to public utility companies is always slow try and ring one <laughs> of them up it's not it's not straightforward brilliant cool anything else that you want to ask well um interestingly when we spoke after the panel we did together i actually pulled you up on a question that I wanted to ask you because I was interested and in knowing how much and how the length and the time and all of the energy you put into environmental practices and all the work you do. I 
was questioning you about why would you accept Barclay Card, for example, as a sponsor for your festival, even though they are huge funders of the fossil fuel industry. And you actually gave me a really interesting response. So I, I thought we could revisit that if you're interested. Well, it connects into, uh, are you able to influence a company like Barclay Card from outside the tent or inside the tent in simple terms? And I've always believed that you would have greater influence inside the tent than from outside the tent. Um, mm. Not to the exclusion of those outside the tent, because mm. there is no question the, sig the most significant impact any organisation has had in the UK in recent years has been Extinction Rebellion. Mm. And they've not been inside anybody's tent. Um, <laughs> they've been on the, uh, apart from their own, and, and they've been on the outside. <laughs> So it, it's not to the exclusion of those outside the tent, but it, it, mm. it, I, I've always believed that the best way in is to influence from within, uh, mm. if you can. Again, it comes back to the sort of discussion around Shell, for example, mm. um, you know, who I think have now announced, and you, you, I'm sure you've got the dates better than I have, that they, will, they won't produce energy from uh, anything that, uh, burns carbon in whatever it is, 20 years, um, mm. whatever it is. What do you do? Do you turn your back on Shell because of all that they have done before? Or do you embrace them because of all what they're going to do? Mm. We are, we're enthusiastically talking about Volvo, Jaguar, mm. not producing uh, electric cars in the future. Uh, nobody's really saying, well, you know, should we hate Volvo because the only thing they've ever done is mm. produce mm. machinery that burns carbon. So, you know, we're, we're all okay with that. We're all happy mm. to jump in our car and drive to the festival in, in a car that's <laughs> been made only with the purpose of burning carbon. So it's a really complicated um, discussion. Mm. My, my view is that we should be inside to influence where we can. And mm. again, Increasingly, organisations, big corporate organisations, are uh, thinking about the environment. Uh, NatWest Bank, as an example, mm. I believe, are now talking about essentially being nicer in the way that they lend money to people if the mm. people that they're lending money to are abiding by good sustainability and carbon reduction practices. I'm going to go to them for my next loan then. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, but, you, you know, businesses are beginning to think about it because yeah. shareholders are thinking about it. Mm. You know, shareholders are saying, you know, we're um, vulnerable to being attacked publicly mm. by not doing the right thing. And mm. so, I, again, it's influence from the inside if you can mm. um, and if you can't because there isn't an opportunity. And, you know, I have that opportunity with my festivals and Barclay Card. Um, I have that opportunity with other, I talked about the Carlsberg example. They wouldn't have been doing that if I hadn't have asked them to do it and I'd have been kicking them from the outside. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think it's a really, it's almost like a multi-pronged attack, but it's, you know, you've got all of the activists and Extinction Rebellion, all these people getting together, to create the public pressure and then you've got someone like you on the inside on the inside at the same table as these people saying look you should do this it they support each other and i think we've all been getting really tired of living in such a polarized black and white kind of world and it's things are actually way more nuanced than that and it's yes yeah, it's really interesting to hear your thoughts and opinions on that as well and i, I agree with you the Reading Festival that I first went to in 2001 obviously didn't look a lot like the Reading Festival I went to in 2019. Like you talked earlier about how things change rapidly and it often gets said that putting on a festival is like creating a small city, a small temporary city for, for a weekend. Do you think our festivals of the future might look a bit like our cities of the future because things are changing rapidly, like infrastructure, the way people travel, all those sorts of things. So I, I suppose I'm asking you to kind of step sort of five, ten years into the future. Are you sort of excited about the idea of what festivals could look like in, in that era? 
I don't think they'll change that much, Greg, in a way. Um, I mean, and, and again, I think it, would, it, it will vary from festival to festival because festival audiences are often perceived as being one type of person. Um, and of course, we all know that festival audiences are UK society and there are lots and lots of different type of people um, in them. But, you know, talking about Reading, for example, or Leeds, it will always be teenagers that go. I mean, Reading is 105,000 teenagers, basically, and Leeds is 85,000 teenagers. And in my terms, what that means is that it's 105,000 teenage bedrooms that get left and 85,000 teenage bedrooms that get left. And <laughs> for anybody that's a parent, go, you know how difficult it is going into a teenager's bedroom and saying, can you tidy this up, please? <laughs> and I've got 105,000 teenagers, and I'm not even saying, can you tidy it up, um, that overtly. In fairness, we, we, we had a big thing um, in the 2019 Reading Festival where we worked very closely with Extinction Rebellion, and um, we actually reduced what was left on site by 50% compared to the previous year. So, so they did listen, but... It's always going to be a camping festival. They're not going to come in in anything other than tents. And some of them do like what I did for my first Reading Festival in 1972 and arrive without a tent uh, and didn't bother having a tent for the entire weekend. Um, I didn't know that I was being sustainable at that point. <laughs> On reflection, I probably I can claim to be so. Um, but and, and, of course, they all buy throwaway tents and, and a lot of them took the tents away but they probably threw them home when they got got home or whatever and and, and and you know so we will it change that the tents are more environmentally recyclable i hope so will we have permanent power i hope so will we have a permanent stage no will we have a um, a permanent roof on the stage or anything like that no will we have more permanent toilets, no, uh, because it's essentially three strokes, six days a year, six days of camping, three days of music in that sense of it. And permanence doesn't justify that. Uh, mm. Added to which, the minute that you become permanent, you stand still. And music festivals can't stand still. They have to evolve. So by their nature, they will always be temporary in order to be doing that. But, but the most important thing is, or the most important three things are the audience travel, um, uh, you, you know, the power, and then what, what's left and what's recycled. Um, interesting enough, Reading is, has probably got the lowest uh, audience carbon footprint uh, of any festival in the world, actually, because the age profile of the kids means they haven't got cars, and actually increasingly people are not having cars and you know my my two sons are you know one's 26 and one's 30 they don't have cars they've never had cars they've got no interest in cars they can't see the use for them in their lives in that sense really um so and and, and reading of course is you can walk from the train station and so that's what everybody does and and so you know the the, the big change will be in how governments and scientists have improved audience travel um you know how i've improved electricity generation on the side and of you know overall in society and uh, and then not so much what's left on site but how well we can recycle what's left on site mm -hmm. i wanted to finish with a quote from the festival republic website that i absolutely love and i didn't realize in my research before we spoke today that basically these words come out of your mouth so on there it says um, and is speaking on behalf of, of Festival Republic and I suppose Live Nation as well. And it says, as the world's leader in live entertainment, we have a responsibility to preserve the live music experience for generations to come and a tremendous opportunity to use our platform to inspire global environmental action. So I suppose my final question is, as we head towards COP26 happening in Glasgow later this year, as we head further into what is crucial, crucial decade for action on this front, how do you think festivals can be an arena for action and a sort of trigger for change as, as, as events, as, as, as collective gatherings, bringing people together? How can they work in terms of pushing that um, essential action forward? I think we can only be a 
a voice among many, many others. And the only thing we can do is be an awareness voice. And we will continue to be an awareness voice and continue to encourage best practice and uh, encourage you know, people to learn from us and, and grow with us. And, and that, I think, is the, the thing that is most important to me, that we continue to be an, a, a really loud awareness voice. Thanks again to Melvin for coming on to the podcast. Um, I guess we should start by saying that his work has been hugely influential. To hear that the um, sustainability charter that he led has been adopted by the parent company of his company. So we're talking about Live Nation mm. here, um, who own hundreds of venues uh, worldwide. They put on thousands of live shows in an ordinary year and normal times as well. Um, millions of music fans passing through the door of the events that they're putting on. So this is a big deal. So fundamentally, I've got, just got to say credit to Melvin. He's shifted the culture of one of the world's biggest organisations in music um, for the better. So, you know, he has been doing amazing work in this area. Um, Faye, what, what did you make of our, of our conversation with Melvin? Great. I mean, I really like Melvin. I really like how direct he is. And mm. I like that I can ask him difficult questions. <laughs> um, and he, yeah, and he like will happily talk about things. Um, it's really interesting to hear the opinion that, you know, to, to make change a big sort of industrial level, then having a seat at the table is important. I think mm. it's going to take all approaches to tackle the climate issue. And it's going to take the people who are, you know, sat around those big tables and have that in a way harnessing harnessing that privilege to um to have those conversations in the right place with people who might listen to them but it's also going to take the activists the the grassroots the you know all different approaches and but i think it's completely valid to to hear his approach as well and and really interesting sort of i think it just changes what we how we see a climate activist you know we come and all all sizes and shapes and um levels yeah and of, some of us yeah. some of us are sitting on the cars on oxford circus and others are in a boardroom making an equal amount of um contribution mm. yeah it's a different different way of doing it I, I i i was fascinated to hear him talk about just the holistic nature of how he thinks about sustainability in his festival right down to things like his supply chain and and he, t he told that story about carlsberg mm. so all of the beer that get, is on tap at a, a reading and leeds festival over the course of the weekend which is a lot of beer of yeah. just how he'd basically thrown down the gauntlet to someone like that and says if you want to work with me next year bring in your presentation to my office about how you're going to be more sustainable because this really really is key to you getting my business i thought good on him and i just <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know he, he really is you know he's so determined in that area and, and, and it sounds like they really responded and, and they got something out of it that might you know end up forming a more sustainable part of their business so his bullishness in that respect mm. really reaping rewards um absolutely not everybody has the character or the do you know what i mean to to, to do that sort of thing so yeah it's wielding power for good really in a way isn't it wielding power to mm. push things forward as uh, the streets would say <laughs> yeah definitely um I, I thought you were into i thought your question around um foreign travel was really interesting obviously over the last 10 years because um short haul flights have become increasingly more affordable to, to some people that, you know, we've seen these, these foreign festivals pop up that market back to UK audiences saying, basically come and have a really, really cheap weekend in the sunshine and see the same bands that you can see in the UK and just how that might have a negative effect or, or just how that does have a negative effect in terms of the amount of flights that, that have to happen for that to take place. Um, but he didn't want to um, blame those events or those people going to it, did he? He, re he really did see that the, the response for innovation lies elsewhere for mm. that kind of thing yeah absolutely it's uh fighting for the right to party in a way it's um, which he's been doing through covid as well you know really fighting to get make sure reading and leeds go ahead i think that is one of the scary things about the thought of tackling climate change it's that we're like oh does that mean i can't do this really awesome fun thing anymore and this uh melvin's take on it is no you can still do that thing but let's mm. let's go to the sort of where the power lies and make those changes so you can do these things without without even noticing perhaps that your emissions have been dropped by 90 percent because of work that other people are doing in the background so yeah i really mm. it's a really interesting fresh take on it and really positive as well because mm. we all want to party yeah interesting to open up the conversation um into talking about the onus that goes on the individual so 
Melvin being a kind of committed vegetarian or vegan, whatever he has been for decades, talking about bringing in um, some of the innovations they were going to have at the 1975's um, concert in 2019 that got cancelled at London's Fisbury Park, which had all of these green initiatives that, that were new to the live music experience, that, that basically his festivals, because he was part of the team organising that, are adopting them and bringing them in this year so that the traffic light system that's going to appear on, on food, for example, so at, at the festivals... But he's still saying, I will give you the information, but I'm not going to deny you, mm. you know, I'm not going to deny the opportunity for you, to, for you to eat red meat at my festival, for example. Yeah. So he really doesn't want to put that. He doesn't want to say no, does he? he wants pe- I guess he wants to give people the information and still make a free choice. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess if, it, if you're going to affect real change, it, it has to come from each person, you know. Mm. But I guess as well, it's like if if you go to that festival and there's there's no meat there, then you just don't eat meat for an afternoon but Mm. if you go and it teaches you something about this is what there's loads of emissions then you you're going to carry that with you maybe that's the first information point you're going to get on that maybe then you see something else on social media you see something else and like all of those information points add up and actually kind of help shift opinions on on how people make you know we do we do make decisions quite lightly on what we eat and sometimes it's which one's got the biggest queue (laughs) a lot of the time at festivals so it's not like these sort of huge heavy things it's it can help change those very light decisions that that we make from from day to day that can you know then have a really big knock-on effect yeah i was also just just finally before we move on i was really pleased to hear melvin talking about the influence that festivals can have they are they are one voice within lots of voices in the music industry that can affect change but crucially they are a big voice aren't they so it is really important work that he's doing mm. and, and he's right when he says we're part of an evolution My, one festival will always be different to the next one and, mm. and and his commitment to to keep moving on the subject is something really great i think yeah definitely before we move on, I guess um, you know, we would love to know what everybody made of that conversation with Melvin and, and just kind of um, festivals and, and, and sustainability in general, because we know it's such a, a such a big and popular subject. And, and, and really, I've got all my fingers crossed that some festivals can happen in the UK this summer. I don't know whether we're going to get that many or if we're going to get half a summer or no summer at all just yet. But I really do hope that we can all return to a, a, a field at some point and enjoy some live music. Greg, just imagine what the guest list is going to be like if there's like one festival that ends up going out <laughs> and everyone's trying to get a free ticket guest list what, what is that Faye I need to I need to I need to get on I that I think it's now quite clever of you actually you know that? we spoke to Melvin ahead of time and now we've got a direct line to him like Melvin get me into Reading Festival I want to see yeah, Queens exactly. of the Can Stone I- Age <laughs> <laughs> exactly you, you'll get rumbled when you see like the TV footage of me stood side of stage with Melvin and Travis Scott <laughs> Yeah, eating a massive beef burger. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let us let us know what you think of of uh, everything heard on the podcast today. We are Sounds Like a Plan podcast uh, on Instagram, or you can email us as well. We're Sounds Like a Plan at gmail dot com. Um, let's do some recommendations, Faye. What have you got that you'd like listeners to know about this week? Well, as travel opens up again, there's a really great app and it's actually, it's related to festivals because it's, it's been developed by um, some amazing people who work for, uh, there's a thing called a Greener Festival and Shambhala Festival. Mm-hmm. It's this sort of great group of people doing a lot of good work. And there's a, an app that they've created called Ecolibrium, which okay. is basically you can track your travel and you can find out how much carbon you're using, creating what your emissions are, and then it gives you op- options to, they use the word balance, I guess it's offset. Um, offsetting isn't the answer to everything, but it's it's part of an answer, and even just sort of tracking your travel and finding out what your emissions are are gonna, again, like we were saying, those little nudges to help you make decisions based on what's good for the earth, etc. So it's equilibrium. And it's available on various app stores, I would imagine. It's certainly available on the Apple one because I'm looking at it now. Sounds good. Um, I'm recommending the new Coldplay single, Higher Power. Um, which <laughs> is uh, <laughs> No, I'm not. Um, uh, mine is a, um, mine's actually a newsletter this week. It's called Signals Amidst the Noise. And it's made by Global Optimism, who also make my favourite podcast, which is called Outrage what, and Optimism. Hold on, isn't this your favourite podcast? 
Um, <laughs> good point. Yeah. My second favorite podcast is just called Outrage and Optimism. Um, they just celebrated their hundredth episode. So they're a bit ahead of us, but, um, it's really good. Uh, in terms of the newsletter, it, it's called Signals Amidst the Noise. And it's a really, really good one shot of kind of climate news. So if you're the kind of person who doesn't bookmark a bunch of websites to cycle through to read about what's going on in the world of you know climate action then this is this might be absolutely ideal for you because it's sort of one weekly wrap-up of what's going on features on government action and what's happening in finance and the race to zero and all that kind of stuff so if you go to globaloptimism.com um you can find information about the newsletter and sign up for it there. But yeah, thanks very much for your time this week, Faye. Really enjoyed the podcast. Yeah. We've got one more episode from series one to come after this one. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening to Sounds Like a Plan, this episode and all of the episodes so far. We've loved being with you and we look forward to having your company for the next episode. So we will see you then. Thanks for spending time with this episode of Sounds Like a Plan. Faye Milton was your host, along with me, Greg Cochran. This podcast is a New Allotment production. Check out their website at newallotment.com. Emma Snook is our editor with artwork and co-production by Stuart Stubbs. Our theme music is by lightandthunder.com. Until next time, thank you for listening. 